All right, so I'm going to read the, the question, and then we'll read the answer together. What comfort is it to us that God shall be the judge of the living and the dead? That in all my sorrows and persecutions, I, with uplifted head, look for the very one who offered himself for me to the judgment of God and removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven, who shall cast all his enemies into everlasting condemnation, but shall take me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. Now, just having read that, I know that we probably didn't digest it completely as we were reading through it. Um, And that's kind of why we take several minutes to go through these passages. But isn't there already a joy to be spoken of just with what we've seen so far? Now, we live in a society that likes to say, don't judge me, right? Don't judge me. You can't judge me. I've even heard that it says that God, God doesn't deserve to judge me. God doesn't deserve to judge me because if He were a good God, then why would He be letting all this stuff happen in the world? No, we should be judging God. Not that that would do any good. But we live in a, we live in a society that is completely against people judging us. And then you hear some of these same people saying, only God has the right to judge me. And that should be a scary thing for a lot of people. But for us, that is not the case. It is not a scary thing to us that God is our judge. Why is that? Just off the top of your head. Just perhaps something that you gleaned as we were reading together. Why is it actually a good thing that God is going to judge us? What say you? Okay. We know what he's going to judge because he tells us in his word. Yeah. And what does that have to do with us? Why is that good news for us? Well, we know he's a righteous God. Mm-hmm. He's going to do it correctly. Mm-hmm. And he's going to save us or his elect. Mm-hmm. We're going to be with him forever. Yeah. So he's going to judge in righteousness. Mm-hmm. Again, yeah. Right. Unbelievable. It's unfathomable. Unfathomable. <laughs> right. And we can't forget that in a in a courthouse, a judge can make one of two decisions: guilty or not guilty. <laughs> so a God, the judge, will pronounce some to be guilty but some to be not guilty. For somebody sitting in a courtroom waiting for the judge's decision, how does that person feel when the judge comes back and says, not guilty? How does that person feel? Ecstatic. Ecstatic. That's what they wanted to hear. That's what they were looking for. That's why they're, I mean, and in our case, we're going to look through some of these passages and see where our joy comes from. Scripturally speaking, we can understand the illustration of the judge in a courtroom and then somebody who was accused of something and then is found not guilty. We can understand that person's joy, that they don't have to be punished for the thing that they were accused of, whether guilty or not guilty. And as we've kind of discussed a little bit, those of us who are God's chosen, who have have called to faith, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, 
We will stand before God, and He will, in righteousness, judge us to be not guilty, to be righteous. But we're going to look at, we're going to look at it so we can see the scriptural foundation for why we believe this. This is not just encouraging words that you know, we all just want to hear. We want to hear these things, but the scriptures actually gives us a foundation for why we believe this. Hebrews chapter 9. Once you get there, if somebody could read that for us. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 to 28. And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Okay, so right there, very succinct. Everybody's going to have a point, in, a point in time when they are judged. We're not going to escape that. It's going to happen whether we want to stick our head in the sand and ignore the fact so that we don't see it coming. It's coming no matter what. It's appointed for men to die once and after that, the judgment. There's not a single person who has escaped judgment. And just as much so, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So for those of us who have been washed, those of us who have, who, who our sins were forgiven because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, during that time of judgment, we will find that time of judgment to be our very salvation. Luke chapter 21, verses 25 to 28, if somebody could read that for us. In the way roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your head, because your redemption draws near. Okay, look at these things that are happening. For the person who has no idea what's going on, these things look terrifying. Signs in the sun, the moon, the stars, the distress of nations with perplexity, roaring waves, the failing of men's hearts from fear, the expectation of those things that are coming to the earth, the power of the heavens are shaken. Those things are terrifying to the natural man. When we see a hurricane coming, that's terrifying. If we see, but what if you were to see something in the stars? The star is the thing that's like the most consistent thing in existence. <laughs> nothing that we can, not nothing we can do can touch them. Yes. In 1966, uh, I went outside at 5:30 in the morning, and there were thousands of stars or meteors mm -hmm. exploding. Yeah. And, and that was so unusual that it was, mm -hmm. I didn't know that I thought I'd run back in the house. Right. That did. Right, right. <laughs> but what else can you do? <laughs> right. Very few people saw that. Yeah. They had to put me on to that there was going to be something special. Yeah. It'll be it'll be a greater of magnitude here than what I saw that morning. Right. Like three or four thousand of them a minute. Yeah. That must have been fantastic to see and terrifying. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah, that must have been terrifying yet fantastic. And...
Stuff like that's going to be happening. People's hearts are going to be failing. But what does it say at the end of this passage? In verse 28, it says, Lift up your heads. Why? Because your redemption is drawing near. We know what these things are going to mean if they happen before our life is over. We know what these things are going to testify of. The natural man is going to see these things and just see impending doom. Because we don't know. We don't have our hearts assured before God. We don't know what this stuff is happening. We don't know God's word. Or they, or whatever. But we know our redemption is drawing near at the end of days. So this is something that, yeah, it may look terrifying. But yeah, it's also beautiful at the same time. Yeah, it's, fan- it's beyond anything we've seen before. And because of that, it's terrifying because it's, nat- it's natural to be afraid of the, that which is outside of your comp- typical realm of comprehension. But we know, we can remember from Scripture, no, my redemption is drawing near through all of these things. Not just these things, but if you, if you see death's doorstep right up, right up ahead of you, it's the same thing. It's not that I'm about to die. It's about, it's about I'm about to get my fullness of my redemption. The fullness of my salvation draws near at death's doorstep. Look at Romans chapter 8. Verses 18 to 24. Who would like to read that for us? I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? Let's stop right there. What is he talking about in this passage? What exactly are we waiting for? Adoption, redemption. redemption. When do we receive that? What kind of clues do we see in this passage? He's speaking very much... um, He's not being extremely straightforward, but he's giving us clues. What kind of clues do you see in this passage that show us? When are we supposed to be receiving this adoption and redemption? What is our flesh confined to? Groanings? Decay? Corruption? When God created this world, He created it so that it would live. But sin brought upon it decay, corruption, futility. So when our body is done, <laughs> to speak, you know, lightly in a sense. You know, was your, bo- was your body meant to last forever? I mean, as far as today. Is your body supposed to last forever? No. Some some of us feel it more than others. 
<laughs> no, we know that our, you know, you can, you can kind of associate with the groanings of creation. <laughs> um, every time you wake up in the morning and you try to get out of bed. And uh, we understand that. That our body is meant to wear out. If it didn't wear out and pass away, would we ever be absent from the body and present with the Lord? No. So, when it, so it's talking about creation itself is waiting for the day that it's delivered from its bondage of corruption. We will be delivered from bondage to our corrupt bodies. It's just a matter of decades for us. The earth has to wait a little bit longer <laughs> than we do. But our bodies, it's just, a, it's just a matter of decades. And we get to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. And that's something that we get to look forward to. It says in verse 24, For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? And in verses 30 to 35, I'll read these real quick. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, then he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in all these things, we, some of us have some of these verses memorized. The point he's trying to make is, not even death. Death is actually good for us. Death does not come against us. Death is our friend. The joke's on Satan. He brought death into this world, depravity, destruction, but the joke's on him because that's the very portal into God's presence for those of us who have, have this hope of eternal life. So Paul is rejoicing in the fact that there's nothing that can keep us from God's love. Not even death itself. Actually, death is what brings us into the fullness of God's love. So in life, all these tribulations and all these distresses, are they worse than death? Well, then they too are our friends. They too give us in this life some sense that we are connected with God. And they bring us closer and deeper into His presence, at least for those of us with eyes to see and ears to hear. If only we will listen to them, to what they have to say. How do we know this is true? Because of verse 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for you, if God is on your side because He has justified you and called you, Nothing is your enemy, not corruption, not death. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If he saved us for eternal life, what, what's going to keep God from giving it to you? If Jesus died for your eternal life, and God has given it to you through faith, what's going to keep him from, make, from making good on that promise? Nothing. Nothing's going to keep him from that. He will judge you to be righteous. Titus 2, 13 and 14. 
Somebody could read that. Okay, so Paul is teaching Titus, we're looking for the hope. We're looking for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if you are somebody who is guilty and facing condemnation, are you looking for the opportunity to stand for a judge? Are you looking for that? Are you eagerly anticipating the day that you're going to stand before that judge who is going to condemn you? Is that what you're looking forward to? Not at all. Not at all. If there was any way that you could escape... What? The struggle's over. Yeah, the struggle, the wait is over. Just give me my judgment. But you're not eagerly anticipating His presence. He is not a friend to you. He is the one divvying out your judgment, your condemnation. It's not something to look forward to. But He's telling us, look for that day. Look for His appearing. He's the one who gave Himself for you. To redeem you. To set you free from slavery to sin. To redeem us from every lawless deed. And purify for Himself His own special people. Zealous for good works. He's the one who purified you. You are clean. You are guiltless. There's nothing to condemn. There's only joy in His presence. Do you have... And what, what, is, what is your view of Christ in life? Are you constantly kind of cowering because you feel like you don't measure up? Because you feel like you're guilty of so many things? That how in the world could... I know the Bible says God so loves the world, but He doesn't really like me. <laughs> I mean, look at me. I'm a mess. Yeah, He loves me, but does He really like me? <laughs> does He really stand me? Stand with me? Is he patient with me? Surely he's run out of patience by now. Look at all my failures. But is that the kind of eyes that we long to look into? Eyes that are discouraged and disappointed in you? If the Lord is going to receive us with open arms at the end of days, why is he any different now? Why would he be any different now? When that father was looking for his prod- the prodigal son to come home, was he just sitting there in disappointment or was he sitting there in anticipation? What do you think? He was looking. Saw him off way off. Mm-hmm. When he saw him, he was excited. He right. Sitting Yeah. He was sitting waiting in anticipation for the arrival of his, of his son. He wasn't sitting there just stewing over all of his sins, stewing over all of his failures, about the fact that he he had essentially cheated him out of all this money, (laughs) all this inheritance. He wasn't stewing. He wasn't fuming, sitting there on that porch. He was anticipating. The father was anticipating the arrival of his son. And if we're looking forward to a Jesus who has purified us, who has redeemed us, when we die, then why do we, regret, why do we 
cower from his gaze while we live. We don't need to. Change your perception of what God thinks about you and make it biblical. Because he is not against you. 2 Thessalonians 1, 4-10. Somebody could read that. Therefore we ourselves boast about, <clears throat> boast about you among God's churches, about your perseverance and faith and all the persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. It is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you also are suffering. Since it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us, this will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his <coughs> powerful angels when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will, re they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. And on that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by those who have believed because our testimony among you was believed. So in this passage we see the two different sectors. There are some who are going to be received but that yet God is the judge of the wicked as well. He may have removed the curse from me but he also will judge his enemies. He will, as the catechism says, who shall cast all his enemies into everlasting condemnation. He says it's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Those who are God's enemies, who come against us as our enemies. It is righteous. It is a just thing for God to repay them for their iniquities. And it is a just thing to give us rest. And then in verse 8 and 9, he talks about this punishment with flaming fire, with vengeance to those who do not know God or obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to be punished with everlasting destruction um, from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Now the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power, those are not evil things. Those are actually beautiful things to us. But to His enemies, they are terrible things. Jayla and Tucker, what book are we reading before bed at night? You remember? Yeah, the wardrobe book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now, what kind of animal is Aslan? He's a lion, right? Now, is a lion a pretty, um, a pretty weak creature? Nothing to be afraid of? No. What kind of what kind of animal is it? Okay, it's a lion. Are lions scary? Yeah. If you saw a lion outside, would you be afraid? Why? What? It might attack you, right? And if it attacked you, is a lion stronger than you, Tucker? Or are you stronger than the lion? Yeah, the lion. Thank you for your honesty. The lion is stronger than you. Uh, Jayla, what about you? Is the lion stronger than you, or are you stronger than the lion? The lion's stronger than you? Okay. Now, Aslan, the lion, in the story, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Now, who was afraid of the lion? The witch? 
Well, everybody, yeah. But then didn't, you remember Lucy and, what's the other girl's name? Susan, yeah. Didn't they, weren't they hugging him and holding on to him and loving on him? Weren't they doing that in the last chapter that we read? Yeah. Well, how, how could they do that? When he, lion is so big and scary. Why would they be able to do that? Because he wasn't moving? Well, no, not necessarily. Did Aslan like them or did he not like them? Yeah, he liked them. He was on their side, right? He was their friend. Aslan was, on, was the friend of Susan and Lucy, right? Yeah, he was on their team. But who, who was his enemy? Yeah, and the witch was very scared of him, right? Yeah. And the witch had the right to be scared of him because she was his enemy. Now, in that story, it kind of, kind of shows a difference here, just to bring it back to this, this subject. These children had no reason, well, other than the fact that he was a big scary lion, to be afraid of Aslan because they knew that Aslan was their friend. He was on their side. He was their protector, their savior, in a sense. Even though he had full power to destroy them with his might and his power. And just in, this, in the sense of this, pas- in this passage, the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power, mighty things, more fantastic than seeing all those exploding um, meteors in the sky. <laughs> you know? But for us, he is our friend, he is our savior, he is our redeemer. Those things work for us. They are an encouragement to us. They are a joy to us. But for his enemies, they are the complete opposite. They are good or evil based off of whether you are his friend or his enemy. Whether you are his elect or not. So the judgment of God is good or frightening depending on which side you fall on. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18 if somebody could read that. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. These words are a joy that we will be in the presence of God. It is a joy that we will stand before him and receive his judgment of guiltlessness. When we see, when we hear of Christ's coming, when we are caught up to him in the clouds, we know that eternal life is right there. It's right there. And that is good. Therefore, we can be comforted with these words. In Psalm 139, it kind of... I love this psalm. I was reading this not too long ago. And it's just, it fits this entire subject. Psalm 139. I'm going to read this. We're not going to sit, we're not going to go through it verse by verse. 24 verses. We don't have that time to do that. Maybe one day. But the psalmist, David, says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. 
You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Now if a person were to come to you, a stranger were to come to you and say that, say these things to you. I know you're sitting and you're rising. I know everything that you think before you think it. I'm always near you. I know everything. I know every step that you take. Wouldn't that be kind of creepy? It reminds me of an old song from like the 70s or the 80s that I'm not really going to sing, but perhaps you remember the song I'm thinking about. Um, but these things, as we continue to read, they're astonishing to, to David. But yet they're not frightening, necessarily. And he says in verse 7, he continues this train of thought, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Now those things, like the fact that you cannot escape God. David knows this. There's not a single place that you can go to be away from God. To some of us, that's like, man, I just want to be, have some privacy here. But why, did, why does Jesus say men love their darkness rather than the light? Why did he say that? Because their deeds are evil. They don't want to be exposed. They're ashamed. They would be ashamed to see in the light the things that they do in darkness. So that's why they always wanted the lights off at the dances we sponsored at school. Yeah, because you wanted to... Yeah, right. They didn't want everybody seeing what they were doing. Or whatnot. But David is saying, there's not a single place I can go that you're not there. Now that is frightening to somebody who wants to keep some secrets. Who is doing shameful things. In the darkness. Who wants a little privacy. But what, is, what does he say in verse 10? Even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. So he's not, he's not speaking in fear of God. He's not resenting the fact that God is everywhere and that he can't escape his presence. He's, he's soaking it in. He's loving it. He's cherishing it. Because he says, because of that, you're always leading me. You're always holding me, keeping me secure. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide me from you. But the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance, being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written. The days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. In all of his days, all of his deeds, all of his thoughts, everything about him was already known to God before he was even born, before he was even conceived. But yet this was not grievous to David. Because what does he say in verse 17? How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. Even though you knew everything. You knew about this whole Bathsheba incident before I was even born. But how precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more than the number of the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. 
O that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. So again, here you see the the destruction of the enemies, the slaying of the enemies. Search me, O God, in verse 23, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. How many, how, how many of us would be comfortable praying that prayer? <clears throat> Search me and know my heart. Try me, know my anxieties. See if there is any way, wicked way in me and lead me in the life everlasting, in the way everlasting. We need to pray this. We need to pray this. If we are afraid of praying this, then it's because... We are like that person who would rather just be in the darkness, have some things hidden, have my own things that kind of, you know, my hall pass, per se, you know, sort of speak. But no, David is saying, search me, know my heart, try me, know my anxieties, see if there's any wicked way in me. We know that there are wicked ways in us. We know it. We're afraid of confronting it, though. But no, the presence of God, the fact that He's always near, the the fact that He is the righteous judge who is judging you righteously, when He sees the wickedness in you, what's He going to do? He's going to do exactly what David is praying for in this last sentence. Lead me in the way everlasting. He's he's not going to crush you down. He's not going to do what Kirk just did to that cricket just a minute ago when 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 we came in here. He's not going to crush you. Because you're this annoying little pest, always failing, always messing up. That's not the way God deals with us, no. When He sees the wickedness in us, He leads us in the ways everlasting. Because He is... He might have to give us a little nudge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, just like a father chastens his children, or a school teacher, his student. Sometimes that created a great love. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Because they learn that you care. And for those of us who, who hope in the Lord, we know that when we endure affliction, it's not because God is against us. Who is against? Who can be against us when God is for us? No, He's for us. So therefore, everything that happens to us is for us. There's nothing that can happen to us that is not for us in some way. We may not always understand it, but it's true. Because the way that we will stand before Him in judgment is the way that we stand before Him today. In the delight of God. In the righteousness of Jesus Christ. With Jesus Christ, our advocate, coming alongside of us. And though Satan may accuse us, they are unworthy. If we were standing alone, that would be true. But since Christ stands at our side, that is no longer true. And we will not be kept account, held accountable for our sins that Christ died to redeem us from. And it's the same while we yet live. Do you really believe that you're saved? Do you really believe that you're redeemed? Well, then fear not. The Lord is with you to love you, to cherish you, to lead you in the way everlasting. It's okay that He sees all of your wickedness. It's okay that He sees your sins the secret things that nobody else knows. It's okay that he sees those things because he's the one that can lead you in the ways everlasting. We need not fear to pray, to confess, to repent. That's the way of the life for the Christian. 
And we can do it in confidence because we know the judge who is going to judge us righteously already judges us righteously. But he wants us to walk in the way now. And he's there to help you do it. And he is the one person, the one being, the one entity, the God, who can actually give us the strength to do it, to stand, to fall seven times but yet rise every single time. So do not fear the judgment. Do not fear him today. But come before his throne with boldness. You will come before his throne with boldness when you escape the corruption of the body. So come to him with boldness now. And pray with David. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my anxieties. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 